0: Late last year, I did something that I've been doing less and less lately. I went to a concert. What the fuck is that, yo? Yeah? I was at a small venue in Toronto. The headliners were the Snotty Nose Rez Kids, a hip-hop duo from B.C., and they were pretty awesome, but I want to talk about the opener, the OBGMs.
1: Yo, yeah, we're the OBGMs,
0: so we're from right up in here. They'd been added to the bill pretty close to the last minute. So almost everyone in the crowd was there to see the snotty nose Rez kids. They came for a hip-hop show. And the OBGMs are definitely not that. We are a Nickelback cover band to the, <laughs> of the band. They're not actually a Nickelback cover band. Everybody on three. There comes a hero to save us. I'm not going to stay here. Honestly, a bit of an They're a punk band with guitars and drums and all of that old-fashioned stuff. They just come back from a months-long tour, opening for groups like Death From Above, 1979, and Pup. So I was interested to see how this super young, hip-hop-loving crowd would react. And to be honest, a lot of them seemed pretty into it right from the get-go. But as the set went on, I noticed a change. Even the folks who seemed to start out reluctant got more and more enthusiastic. Maybe it was the absolute magnetism of their frontman, Denzel McFarlane. Everybody open this bitch goes this way. Or the jagged guitars. Or the ferocious drums. But I think more than anything, people were just being won over by seeing a band so dedicated to their craft. And don't get me wrong here, this isn't some kind of old man screed about how kids don't listen to the right kind of music. I'm just saying that there's something undeniable when you see musicians of any kind get on stage and give it their all. There's really nothing quite like it. And for the musicians themselves, that experience can be life-giving.
1: At the risk of sounding cliche, I think it's as close as I can get to flying. Like I think it's the thing that completes me fully, and it's the thing that makes me feel the best that I can in that adrenaline-packed 45 minutes, half an hour, one hour, whatever it is. That there is one of the guys who's on the stage that night. My name is Simon Othit. I live in Toronto. I'm a musician. I play in a bunch of different projects and occupations. I play in a band called the OBGMs. I also make music under my own name, Simon Othit. I work at a studio as an audio engineer, and I generally do all things musical as much as I can. Now,
0: along with doing all things musical, Simon's also a good friend of mine and someone who's been a commons listener for a long time.
1: I didn't think my, my subscription to the show would be a lotto ticket to be on the show one day. <laughs> to be a, a longtime listener, first-time caller, you bet.
0: <laughs> and the reason I wanted to bring Simon onto the show today is that music, and frankly most creative industries, are utterly dominated by monopoly power. Almost every aspect of the business, including songwriting, music production, distribution, and touring, have come under the grip of only a handful of massive corporations like Sony, Warner, Universal, Live Nation Ticketmaster, Apple, and Spotify. And that has some pretty profound consequences for us as listeners and fans, but especially for the musicians themselves. Now, music's always been a tough profession to make a living in. Simon says that he doesn't even really remember the first time he got paid to perform.
1: I remember almost all of the first 200 unpaid gigs. I can remember the first time that I made any sort of like real money from a performance. The one that comes to mind is I remember one of my one of my older bands was called We're Doomed, which was apt. After all, that band didn't last too much longer, but it was called We're Doomed, and we had one of our early shows. We won this battle of the bands in Halifax, and we convinced Scion, the car company, to sponsor one of our gigs as like a fundraiser. So they gave us like a few thousand bucks to hang a hang a banner behind us, and I remember thinking like Wow, this is something we can actually like maybe make some recordings on." And today, you might think it's easier
0: in some ways to break through. After all, artists and bands are finding new audiences through TikTok and streaming services like Spotify. You don't need the backing of a big record label to get noticed anymore. But as many of you probably know,
1: streaming pays shit. There are ways to make a profit through Spotify. You just have to have gargantuan amounts of streams in order to do it to make $1,000 on Spotify, you need to have roughly 303,000 streams. You make somewhere between, you know, $5 and $20 US a stream on satellite radio a lot of the time. It's quite a difference. So how did we get to the place
0: where it's easier than ever to become a famous musician, but harder than ever to make a living from that? The answer is sure to surprise you. More after the break. To understand why streaming services can get away with paying such paltry sums to artists, we have to go back a little ways. Now, we could start this story in a lot of different places, say Tin Pan Alley or Motown, but instead, we're going to kick things off with the man who, in my humble opinion, is the single greatest pop musician of the last half century. (laughs) Not only was Prince one of the best singers and the most electric live performer of his generation, he's probably the greatest guitar player ever, he might even be the best pop songwriter, he sold over 100 million records, making him one of the best-selling musicians of all time, he was an absolute cultural tour de force. So why in the 1990s did Prince, someone at the absolute top of the musical world, perform with the word slave written across his face? and change his name to an unpronounceable symbol as an act of protest. That's because no matter how wealthy or famous of a musician you are, the record labels will always be more powerful. Even the biggest acts were severely underpaid.
2: Historically, the royalties were very low. They were so low that it kind of beggars the imagination. Like, the Beatles got one penny per LP, but not the whole penny. They got 85% of a penny because 15% was kept back for marketing expenses. And then they paid their agent 10%, and then they split the remaining fraction of a penny four ways among them, right? That's how low the royalties are.
0: That's Cory Doctorow. He's a journalist, novelist, and the co-author of Chokepoint Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back. Now, the low royalties are one thing but the record labels also had much dirtier tricks up their sleeves.
2: It's useful here to contrast the record industry with other creative industries. So I write novels, and when I write a novel, my publisher pays me an advance, and nominally that's some money that I live on while I write a book. Every time you sell a copy, 10-12% of the cover price goes to me, and once enough of those dollars have flowed in that all of that advance is paid back, then I just get a check. I get a check twice a year from my publisher for my royalties. Now, if you're a musician, it doesn't work like that. If you're a musician, you do get an advance that pays for you to live off while you're in the studio. But where my publisher would normally eat the price of the typesetting, the editing, the publicity, the marketing, the plane tickets when I go out on tour, the champagne at the launch party, all of that is actually charged to the musician's account. And so if you do a record deal, you get an advance and you owe that, but then you also have this other part of your debt which is all the money that you spent producing and selling the record. So imagine if you owe hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions for your production, and then each record is giving you a fraction of a penny, you could sell millions of dollars of records and still owe your record label money. And so that was the the bind that musicians found themselves in. And it's the bind that Prince was in. And that wasn't
0: all. What really got under his skin was the fact that no matter what, his music ultimately belonged to the record company and not him. Here's Prince in an interview in the 90s.
2: Ever since my third album, uh, I wasn't really taking large advances from the recording companies. I was recording the albums myself in my own studio. So the way I looked at it, I owned the work because I paid for it. And I did all the work. I created it so I felt like it should belong to me. If they're going to be indeed a delivery service, then that's fine. But even FedEx doesn't say that they own the thing that they ship, you know, right? We're going to make a copy and we're going to keep this here and then we'll make a copy and give to everybody else.
0: And this here is the crucial part. If you record a song for a record label, they own the copyright behind the recording. And that is the source of their power. Prince was eventually able to satisfy his contract with Warner by putting out a slew of hastily put together albums. And not long after Prince's fight came to its conclusion, the music industry was hit by a crisis Napster.
2: When the Napster era hit, when record labels' financialization started to boomerang on them, when their various commercial strategies started to fail, when another CD boom where you got to sell the records all over again. Didn't materialize, a lot of record labels started to fail. And this was in the early 2000s. And it was about 20 years into the period in which we no longer applied any real scrutiny to mergers. And so these record labels, the big three, were able to buy all of the little guys and roll them up, which is how you get Warner, Universal, and Sony owning 70% of all recordings and 65% of all compositions. And that means that they have the future of the music industry in their hands, especially because these copyrights are extraordinarily long-lived.
0: Like dragons sitting on top of their gold, the big three record labels hoarded most of the world's recorded music in their vaults.
2: So these are extremely long copyrights, which means that the portfolios that the labels acquire, they're, just, they're effectively immortal. And so mm-hmm. when Spotify kicks off and says, right, we're going we're gonna to stream music... It's inconceivable that they would stream music without doing a deal with the big three labels, which means that the three labels had them over a barrel. And the first demand the big three labels had was that they needed shares in Spotify. And they each became significant shareholders of Spotify. Mm -hmm. They became Spotify's business partners, which put them in an unreconcilable conflict of interest. Because as shareholders of Spotify, every dollar that Spotify paid to them as a dividend was a dollar they couldn't pay to them as a royalty. And the difference between dividends and royalties is that the artists in their portfolio are entitled to a share of those royalties, but the dividends are theirs to do with as they will. So the first thing that Spotify and the labels agree on is that Spotify is going to pay a shockingly small amount of money for every stream. You've probably heard this, right? You hear artists saying, I have to sell a million streams before I get a bag of groceries. What's not as well understood is that's because Sony, Universal, and Warner insisted on it. They get other goodies, too. They get free advertising, free inclusion in playlists. Now, the final thing the big three did was they negotiated something called most favored nation status, which meant that Spotify could not pay anyone more than they paid the big three. And what that meant is that if you were one of the independent labels or independent musicians who composed the other 30% of the record sector, you got the small dollar amount that Sony and Universal and Warner agreed to, but without those top ups, without free inclusion and playlists, you have to pay for that. You have to pay payola and without free advertising. And so you're you're getting the shitty end of the stick. And this is the planned economy, right? The planned economy is that you have to be signed to one of these three labels if you want to get a fair shake. And then these three labels get to dictate terms to you, whatever terms they want to you when you come through the door, because they're the only game in town.
0: This is what I found so surprising about all of this. I was under the impression that record labels just didn't matter as much anymore, but because they continue to control so much of the world's recorded music, they dictate terms for all musicians, even for folks who aren't signed with them. And you can really see how twisted the conflict of interest between the record labels and Spotify gets when it comes to Spotify's IPO, where they went public on the stock
2: market. On the eve of that IPO, the standard deal that the big three had had negotiated with Spotify expired, and they went back to the negotiating table. And you would think that this would be the moment at which they could really put the screws to Spotify. Instead, they took a pay cut because it made their shares more valuable. And not only did they take a pay cut, but they renewed the most favored nation deal, which meant that everybody else in the industry took a pay cut so that Spotify could have a bigger IPO, and so that the shares that the big three held would blow up bigger on day one when the IPO popped.
0: So this is how the new economic system for music was created, with the record companies and the streaming platforms working hand-in-hand to pay the actual musicians as little as possible. But here's the thing. As a listener, I kind of love these streaming
1: platforms. And so does Simon. As a consumer, as a music listener, the platform is great. I think we can all agree with that. And for musicians, there are some advantages too. I think there's always been difficulty around whatever medium of consuming music is the most engaged at that time. So at one point it was radio, and of course it was much more difficult to access the radio in the 70s and 80s without a team or a record label behind you. And now we're at the point where obviously it's much easier to put your music on Spotify. That's, I think... Objectively brilliant by today's standards. The problem with Spotify isn't that it's, you know, too affordable a platform or that it doesn't charge enough. You know, the tenant change that they charge isn't more than enough revenue to have created significant profit sharing for artists if they'd wanted to, and if that was the model from the get-go. The problem is that as a business model, it does exemplify exploitation and capitalism. We take somebody like Daniel Eck, the co-founder of Spotify, who has an estimated net worth of 2 billion. U.S. dollars, and I mean that's a lot of streams at three hundredths of a cent of a dollar per stream. <laughs> so if streaming
0: pays next to nothing. How can you make money as a musician? For many artists, the answer is touring. But here, even more than in music production, monopoly reigns, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. First, there was the anticipation. So when
2: the queue opened up to finally buy tickets for Taylor Swift's upcoming stadium tour, no, no, what just for fans, the Swifties went from freaking out.
1: Are you joking? What
2: to melting down? The tickets you have selected have been released.
1: Ah! The line has stopped moving, the website fully crashed. I waited in line. Like
0: six hours. Now, Ticketmaster, the company responsible for selling these tickets, is facing increased scrutiny, with fans and government officials demanding answers on what many claim are unfair practices. Now, if you haven't been personally furious at Ticketmaster at least once in your life, then you probably don't get out much. For decades, Ticketmaster has had a virtual monopoly on ticket sales in Canada, the US, and elsewhere.
2: Ticketmaster used to be just one of many ticketing companies. It bought a lot of its rivals. So did one of its major rivals, a company called Ticketron. About 20 years ago, the American competition authorities waved through a merger between the two of them that gave Ticketmaster a 90% market share.
0: But in 2010, they went even further. Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation to create Live Nation Entertainment.
2: Live Nation owns most of the significant venues in the US and and many all over the world that you would go to do either a really big kind of stadium tour but also to do even just a mid-sized tour. Through that they bootstrapped exclusive rights to promote the concerts of most of the big acts that would appear in those. And then when they merged with Ticketmaster, they pinky swore that they wouldn't use that power to force people to use Ticketmaster for their Live Nation tours nor Live Nation venues for their Ticketmaster ticketed events and so on. And they flagrantly violated that promise.
0: When researching the book that he co-wrote, Chokepoint Capitalism, Cory Doctorow says that he and his co-author offered anyone reporting abuse of power anonymity.
2: We gave everyone we interviewed about scams and shady behavior in the industry the chance to be anonymous. It was only the people who were talking about Live Nation Ticketmaster who required it. And it was across the board. They were afraid of retaliation you know, people who own clubs, people who tour, people who book tours, they talk about them the way you would talk about an abusive parent who's in the next room. And you're whispering to your friends about, about what's going on and hoping they don't hear.
0: In 2019, the U.S. Department of Justice reached a consent decree with Live Nation Entertainment over Live Nation's use of its monopoly power to force venues to use Ticketmaster as their exclusive ticketing platform. A number of venue owners refused, reported being threatened by Live Nation that the company would simply stop booking shows with them, which would be a death sentence for any venue.
1: Now for the artists, Simon says,
0: that they really don't have a choice whether or not to use Ticketmaster.
1: The thing that I find is really interesting is that on the artist level, you really don't deal with Ticketmaster directly, right? Because typically you would have a booking agent or management who would be settling a lot of these things in advance with you. And so it's easy to forget that Ticketmaster is this kind of like evil overlord of the music industry because at the end of the day, even though you're not seeing the money that they're taking that could otherwise be going to you, it is happening, you're just not dealing with Ticketmaster, so it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind a little bit. But as someone who goes to shows,
0: he definitely notices.
1: All you have to do to find a horror story is buy a ticket on Ticketmaster and look at the estimated price beforehand and afterwards, because you're like, what are all these fees for? What am I doing? It's, it's wild, right? And all of those fees, according to Corey, they're just another
0: indication of the monopoly power that Live Nation Ticketmaster has.
2: This is just Ticketmaster padding its bottom line. And, you know, under competitive conditions, you would imagine that artists would just not want to have Ticketmaster be their ticketing agent because it generates a lot of angry feeling among their fans whom they rely on, not just for this one ticket, but over the long term. Ticketmaster doesn't have to keep your fans happy. Ticketmaster has another artist whose fans they can screw over, who's just like you, And if they do something that puts you into such bad odor that your fans, you know, nurse a simmering resentment for you and trickle away, whatever artist they trickle away to is also going to be an artist that has to go through Ticketmaster. doesn't matter to them.
0: And for concert goers, maybe the most frustrating thing of all is the resellers. For any major show, it seems like every seat sells out immediately and you're forced to buy tickets from the resellers at a huge markup of course
2: and despite all their promises to the contrary ticketmaster enables and encourages this secondary market in tickets but this reseller market is something that ticketmaster claimed they were trying to extinguish and then the cbc sent undercover reporters to a ticketmaster conference for resellers where they openly discussed the fact that they would help resellers use bots to buy every ticket for a concert within minutes of it going on sale and then repost them at much higher prices in a secondary market that Ticketmaster controlled.
0: Here's some of the audio from that undercover investigation, where the CBC and the Toronto Star sent reporters to a ticket reseller conference in Las Vegas in 2018. What you're hearing is a journalist talking to Ticketmaster sales reps.
2: I want to know the straight goods
1: on whether Ticketmaster is going to be policing us using our multiple accounts. Uh, no. I have, I have a gentleman who's got over 200 Ticketmaster.com accounts.
0: How many brokers are using multiple accounts? I'd
1: say pretty damn near every one of them.
0: In another undercover conversation, a Ticketmaster sales rep talked to the reporters about how he's worked with resellers who he helped sell over a half a million dollars worth of tickets, which he also described as, quote, not enormous by any stretch. The incentives for Ticketmaster are clear.
2: And that first sale generated a commission that they shared with the artist, but that was a small dollar sale. And the second sale was one that generated a commission that they didn't have to share with anyone. And they just got to stick it in their pocket. But when you're running your own bot marketplace, it is very hard to be credible to say, you know, we are we are really and truly sincere in our effort to stamp out the bots that make us five times more money than selling tickets in the primary market does, especially when you give the people who run the best bots awards at an annual conference for their excellent bot mastering. So, again, I just I just don't find it plausible.
0: In response to that CBC and Toronto Star investigation, Ticketmaster said that it is, quote, categorically untrue that Ticketmaster has any program in place to enable resellers to acquire large volumes of tickets. And in a statement from late last year, Live Nation Entertainment stated that, quote, Live Nation takes its responsibilities under the antitrust laws seriously and does not engage in behaviors that could justify antitrust litigation. The Taylor Swift concert debacle, where millions of Swifties were denied concert tickets because Ticketmaster crashed, has certainly created a bunch of new antitrust activists. And Corey is heartened by that
2: development. We reach this point where people go, enough is enough. And I think that that point comes when we put the pieces together and we say that the same forces that merged every eyeglass vendor in the world into one company— that also owns every retailer for glasses that you've ever shopped at, that also makes more than half the world's lenses and is the largest insurer and raised the price of glasses by a thousand percent in a decade. Those same forces put all the beer into two brewing company conglomerates, which is also the reason that your Uber costs five times as much as it did last time. And the guy who's driving it is on welfare because he can't pay his bills, right? That these are all the same phenomenon. And... When I see you know, Taylor Swift stands getting really outraged about this, I think we, we have got one of the necessary but insufficient preconditions for making a change. We've got a lot of people who are angry. Now we need to make them understand that what they're angry about is the same thing that the striking nurses are angry about. And it's the same thing that professional wrestling fans are angry about when they go on GoFundMe and see that the wrestlers that they loved have all been chickenized by this one Trumpy billionaire who reduced the number of wrestling leagues from 30 to 1? When the Taylor Swift fans march arm in arm with the hardcore beer drinkers, the wrestling fans, the people whose shipping containers are stuck in the Suez Canal, people who wear glasses, that's when we make a difference. We've only
0: covered a handful of the issues that musicians are facing because of corporate concentration. Today, venues are increasingly taking a percentage of merchandise sales from bands. Both satellite and terrestrial radio are also monopolized industries. So many aspects of any musician's professional life are dominated by these issues. But for my friend Simon and so many other musicians, it doesn't mean they're going to stop pursuing
1: what they love. You kind of just have to learn to cope with that. And even in my, you know, I'm in my early 30s, I've been playing music live for almost 20 years now. Are you going to let the fact that you're working some capitalist machine stop you from creating the music that, and the art that you want to be creating after all? I guess for me, it, be, it gets to a point of being like, I don't want to be old and jaded because I you know, gave up on it before I really tried to make a go of it. You have to give it a shot, right?
0: And that commitment is what makes us vulnerable.
2: Creative workers share with other kinds of workers, which is something sociologists call vocational awe, which is when you do your job because... It means something to you. So we all know the joke about the kid who runs away and joins the circus and his dad finds him shoveling elephant shit and says, son, come home. And the kid says, what? And quit show business. Right. But it's not just artists who have this vocational awe and are uniquely exploitable. You see this in all the caring professions, nursing, childcare, teaching, and so on. And, you know, this is why you're seeing these breaking points now, because anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop. And creative workers with this double bind, we're not the most important workers. We're not the most exploited workers, but we are in some ways the most uniquely exploitable workers, because you can come at us from either one of these angles. And what gets done to us gets done to everyone else eventually. And so we're a good harbinger and a, and a good bellwether for what's coming.
0: Music, publishing, acting, and, yes, journalism, are all industries where vocational awe and monopoly power fuse together to create systems of exploitation. Even if you don't work in these industries, you should care. Not just because artists deserve to be compensated for their work, especially when it's enjoyed by so many people, but because as more musicians start dropping out because they can't afford to pay their bills, you're going to have fewer moments like what I was describing at the top of the show.
1: We're at a point where we're seeing artists cancel huge tours, and that seems like it could be specific to live performance, but at the end of the day, it's all linked into being able to keep an artist comfortable and able to create. Not
0: only did a good chunk of those young hip-hop heads walk away fans of a Toronto punk band they'd never heard of, but I had the exact same experience, just in the inverse. After all, I'd come to see the OBGMs, the band my friend plays in. I'd never even heard of the headliner, the Snotty Nose Rez Kids. But ever since that show, I've been listening to them nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Rebecca Giblin, Corey Doctorow, Robert Cribb, and Marco Chown Ovid at the Toronto Star, David Seglins, Rachel Houlihan, Laura Clemenson at CBC News, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Commons Pod. You can also email me, archie at CanadaLand.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria, our production coordinator is Andre Pruhl, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. And you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to CanadaLand.com join. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Small details are big surfaces? Tight corners are odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured, or tall? Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves